It's good to see you, church. I have um, missed being here uh, the last two weeks and uh, missed being home, you know, to my own place of residence. I think in the last month, I've probably been there a total of six days. But I've missed being here, my place of worship. Uh, there's just something about um, being with your own folks that's nice. It's, it's energizing. I like to sing with this church. It's nice to sing with saints around the world. But I very much like being here. And I'm so glad that we get to pick up uh, where we left off in our study of the 12. So please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. I'm sorry, friends, I didn't serve you by looking up the page number ahead of time in the Blue Bible. I'll give you an extra 30, 45 seconds because this one may be hard for you to find. And as you're turning there, I will give one brief update about uh, the trip uh, to Togo, Africa. Uh, God blessed it. It was a success. Our missionary, Rob Clark, is excited about the opportunity there. Well, he was excited theoretically. Now he can be excited practically. And I really am looking forward to sharing with you about it. As we talk about the whole body being engaged in the mission of seeing the gospel advance around the world, I would encourage you to come on Wednesday night if you can. We're going to spend a lot of time in prayer and in praise for what God is doing. But I specifically want to let you know about the strategic opportunity that we as a church may have to play in seeing the gospel advance in that dark part of Africa. But more to come on Wednesday for that. Now let's uh, look at the book of Habakkuk and uh, to help us set the stage of what we have here in this text, I'd like to read a few verses from chapter one and then skip over to the end of the book. I think this will give you the best overview. So we're gonna start off reading verses two to four in chapter one and then I'll just read uh, verse 16 of chapter three. Read with me, please. I'll read aloud. You read silently. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And now flip over to chapter 3, and note the contrast in verse 16. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Now notice the contrast. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And then in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, I will quietly wait for the day of the Lord. Something dramatic has taken place between chapter 1 and chapter 3, and it would be my privilege over the course of the next few moments to share with you that difference. 
But to do that, I think it would be wise to set the stage for this particular text. It's rooted in history, of course, and I'll get to that, but it's more rooted in emotion, experience. Habakkuk, as one of the least known prophets in all of the Bible, is actually one of the most emotive. He's raw, he's open, he's honest. And if I were to parallel his experience for you in a way that, in which you would be able to resonate, at least on a, a superficial level, it would make me think of someone who has been forced to ride in the back seat. Now, I told you that I've been traveling much lately. I went to uh, North Carolina for Thanksgiving to see my family and then went to Africa and thought that after the 10-hour plane ride, we were there and then only realized, no, we're going to be taking car rides every day into, through bumpy roads into villages. And so I've, I've had a different perspective. I'm normally the guy driving. Uh, now I've been the one riding. And at one particular juncture, <laughs> wow. If you weren't paying attention before, now you are. <laughs> At one particular juncture, because of the way things were working out, I was forced to ride in the back seat. Now, just if you can't tell, I'm 6'4". And the back seat was the Toyota 4Runner. And I'm not talking the middle back seat. That's the middle seat. I was in the back seat. Now, this was primarily to, like, keep up my end of the bargain. We were all kind of rotating through, and they offered, like, Justin, you're really tall. We'll let you, you know, sit in the middle. I was like, no, 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 I want to serve you. <laughs> so I climbed into the back of the back seat, <laughs> and all of a sudden, the, the doors, excuse me, the, the, the seats in front of me uh, were slung back, and I was trapped. I mean, they're already high. I can barely see out. The air wasn't on, and we were about to take a three-and-a-half-hour ride to a village, and I'm supposed to be trying to study with my little laptop in my lap. And so I wish somebody would have gotten a picture of this because I've never in my life experienced such cramped conditions. In fact, I don't consider myself to be claustrophobic, but I felt it. I know what that feels like now. Because I said, nope, not going to work. This needs to stop right now. I said, you guys are going to have to turn the air on or I've got to get out of this car. And so thankfully, they turned the air on. I'm able to survive this particular ride. And I just wanted you to know that from the back seat, not the middle seat, but from the back seat, I asked way more questions. <laughs> uh, the, the ones that you've heard before from your own children. And I've been so insensitive. I forgot what it's like. Like, why are you asking how long? And friends, believe it or not, I was that guy. Three different times I asked, how long? <laughs> I wasn't even trying to be funny, but I let out a, are we there yet? <laughs> There's just something about being in a cramped, close space at the mercy of someone else's driving that is immensely uncomfortable. And Habakkuk was in the back seat. In the world situation that was going on at that particular time, he felt closed in and forced to ask questions like, God, where are you going? Why did you take that road? It is bumpy back here. Do you not remember that I am sitting here? He's letting out his complaints. He's letting them fly. He says, how long? He asks that question. He'll say, what are you doing? He'll ask, why are you doing this? 
And it's an experience that we all can resonate with from time to time. We are not the drivers. We are along for the ride. And sometimes the questions fly. God, what are you up to? What are you doing? Why is this happening? And what I immensely appreciate about Habakkuk in particular is he has the honesty and the rawness and the candor just to let the questions fly. Some of us are too polite. We're too reserved. We're too protected. We keep our cards close to the vest. But what you'll notice about Habakkuk in particular is his relationship with the Lord is so close that he feels an openness, an invitation to ask the hard questions. See, for him, the righteous were the ones who were suffering. Evil was actually prevailing, and this puzzled him greatly. And friends, you you would resonate and understand that if, if only villains, for example, got broken limbs, we'd be cool with that. Uh, if, if only uh, the murderer got cancer, we'd be fine. But we know that in our experience, even the most godly and the most righteous sometimes suffer in the greatest of ways, and it forces us to ask, why? What are you up to? A Gallup poll was done a few years ago in which uh, several hundred individuals were uh, asked, if you could ask God one question and be assured that he would answer it, what would it be? And you can predict overwhelmingly the number one question asked, if you, excuse me, it would be, why God, if you are good, do you allow evil to exist? It isn't just the, the normal question. It, it, it's us. One author put it this way. He says, It is natural to assume that since I am God's chosen and beloved, I will get favorable treatment from the God who favors me so extravagantly. It is not unreasonable to expect that from, time, uh, that from the time that I become his follower, I will be exempt from dead ends, muddy detours, and cruel treatment from the travelers I meet daily who are walking the other direction. That God followers don't get preferential treatment in life always comes as a surprise. But it's also a surprise to find that there are a few men and women within the Bible who show up alongside us in such moments. And Habakkuk is that type of man. The funny thing about the book is it's the only one that doesn't denounce the people of God. There are no accusations made toward the people. There are no announcements of judgment uh, for the people of Judah. There's only questions asked of God. Habakkuk asks the questions. God will give his answers. And through this really like wrestling match, at least argumentatively, Habakkuk will find himself at a different place then he started. The text starts low, it ends high, and it'll be our opportunity now to see what made the difference in between. Now, the book is structured in a very unique way, friends. I need to warn you of this. There are three different genres of Scripture in this uh, particular prophecy. We're used to seeing prophecy in particular, but you're going to see prophecy, you're going to see lament, And then when you get to chapter 3, it's going to sound like something straight out of the book of Psalms. 
but there's still one idea. So I'm going to have to do something a little different than I normally do this morning. In helping you understand this text, I'm going to have to tell its story. So I, I need to help you see like what the original readers were seeing. And then every once in a while, I'm going to weave in an aspect of significance. So we're going to follow the story and shape of the text, but what I would like you to be listening out for are, are three lessons or practicalities that arise within this structure. I'll try to make them clear as we go, but I know of no better way to do this. So let's begin with the story. Here's the overview. The first two chapters are uh, argumentation. There is this uh, he said, she said kind of thing going on in chapters one and two, an argument between God and Habakkuk. Chapter three is adoration. So your argument, chapters one and two, adoration. He all of a sudden just lets praise loose. Now, in this initial argument, in this first act, if you will, that I'll call argument, or some could call it interrogation, he asks these questions of God. You'll notice a scene. The first scene we just read in verses 2 to 4. He's saying, God, how long will you let all these horrible things keep happening around me? Now, here he's particularly talking about uh, the prevalence of sin that was in Judah at that particular time. If you've been following this series carefully, you'll know from previous prophets that it seems like Israel was the red-headed stepchild. The northern kingdom were the ones who were always getting into all kinds of trouble, and it seems like Judah just kind of gets off the hook. But Judah was faithful for a time. But after the reign of King Josiah, that boy who became king at eight and actually led a revival in the nation, after his reign, things went downhill fast. And even the southern kingdom began to participate in all types of evil. You'll notice what Habakkuk laments here. He talks about uh, there being all kinds of violence and societal injustice. Look at it. I will cry to you about violence. People are, are hurting one another, harming one another. Uh, he says, why do you make me see iniquity and look at wrong? Destruction, violence before me, strife, contention arise. Uh, nobody's getting along. And, and most importantly, the law is paralyzed. Justice does not go forth. Justice goes forth perverted. Uh, friends, like the ruling powers weren't enforcing God's law. It was total anarchy. And he's saying, God, why would you let this happen in your chosen nation? We understand why this would happen in somewhere like the United States of America. Even though it's one nation under God, we know that it's actually not a Christian nation. Uh, Jesus doesn't rule the United States. A president does along with its people. But at the same time, we have higher expectations of the nation of Israel because they were supposed to be ruled by God and his chosen representative. And so he's rightfully saying, well, why is this happening? Why are you letting this go? Why are you letting people live this way? And, and notice how God responds. The Lord's answer in verse 5, he begins to forecast here that he will fix this sin problem in Judah. And he's going to do it uh, by bringing in another nation, look at verse 5, look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For I am raising up the Chaldeans, 
that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Pause here for a moment because this graphic description continues. But let's make a historical note. Who are the Chaldeans? The Chaldeans is just another name for Babylon. So remember, Assyria was the major superpower that was messing up things in the north. Well, we learned from the book of Nahum that God was going to destroy them, and he did. And you know who he used to destroy the Assyrians? The Babylonians. Someone was even stronger and more brutal than they were. And so God here says, you know what I'm going to do? You're right, Habakkuk, there is a sin problem. These people, my people, they need to be punished. So I'm going to raise up this particular nation to come and give the people of God, and I put this rather humorously, a celestial spanking. They're going to have 70 years of oppression at the hands of this foreign superpower for the way that they have sinned so uncontrollably. Now, the, the depiction of Babylon is graphic. They are, are portrayed as this unstoppable force. Verse 8 says, talks about their speed and about uh, their ability to move in and make a kill. Verse 9, you look at it, uh, they're violent, they are vigorous. Uh, they capture people, they scoff at kings, verse 10, they laugh at fortresses. Uh, they are just an unstoppable force. And 10 years, approximately, after God answers this question for Habakkuk, Babylon does indeed roll in, take most of their leaders captive, and decimate the nation. It's an interesting dilemma because it's in this particular moment that Uh, You understand, those of us who are in Christ, that evil must be punished. And so in this case, Judah got what they deserved. But there's a bigger question standing in many of our minds. And don't worry, Habakkuk is brave enough to answer it. Why would you punish us with someone who's more evil than us? So Habakkuk's like, yes, punishment's going to come. Revival's going to come. But now, all of a sudden, God is doing something like this seems worse than the first. In this case, the treatment is worse than the cure. And so Habakkuk will ask the bold question here. And, and just to help you get a sense of this, I, I would want you to imagine that uh, the American church today, for example, is, uh, let's just say, apostate. Imagine Uh, that they don't faithfully follow Jesus, that they're all about themselves, that they're concerned with materialism, that that they've watered down the message of the gospel. Just imagine, I know it's hard to imagine, but just imagine that's the case. And we pray, oh God, send revival. Oh God, fix this mess. I can't believe that the church is doing it, living this way. Uh, Lord, you must fix it. Lord, punish the evil in your church. Purge us, purify us. And God says, I'll raise up. China, to come and to take over the United States. 
and to take over its churches and to persecute its leaders. Now, if you heard that, because I know we have a lot of United States-loving individuals in this room, we would be aghast. And that's exactly how Habakkuk felt. So naturally, there's an argument. Argument number one from Habakkuk, uh, why are you letting all this evil persist? Response one from God, oh, don't worry, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to send Babylon to come and uh, uh, actually exercise judgment upon you guys for what you've done. Well, that leads to argument number two. Why in the world, God, would you use somebody more evil? Notice how Habakkuk puts it. He's just so open and transparent with the Lord. Uh, we perceive that at this point some time has passed. Uh, the, the Babylonians have already invaded. And so uh, Habakkuk like, picks up the, the prophetic telephone again, if you will, and he phones one in and he says to God in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. He's saying, "Why? we're not supposed to die. We're not supposed to be eliminated. We're not supposed to be taken over. Notice he continues, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. He recognized that. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. He understands. But there's something he doesn't understand. Verse 13, you who are pure, or of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. Notice this objection. He's saying, God, why would you let these people do this? Notice verses 14 to 16. It's really graphic. He says, you, blaming God for using Babylon, you make mankind like the fish of the sea. Like the crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Have you ever heard the phrase, fish in a barrel? (laughs) It's like shooting fish in a barrel. That's exactly what he's saying here. It's like, God, by you allowing them to do this, you are treating your people as if they are just slimy, stinky fish that can be murdered at the preference of some fishermen. They're, just dra- they're dragging them in. That They're executing them. They're, just, they're unendingly killing your people. God, why would you let this happen? It isn't just how long. It isn't just what are you doing. It is why. What is going on here? And it's at this point that I want to step over and weave in this first thread of significance. How is it that, that Habakkuk starts in the pit of despair and ends on the mountain of the light? He takes a first step here, and it is one that we've seen twice already. It is the step of honest investigation honest investigation when Habakkuk perceives wrong he is so comfortable in his relationship with Yahweh that he can honestly investigate why these things are so he doesn't hold back he actually asks the question he expresses the lament he he vocalizes that which is bothering him 
I don't know what your friendships are like, friends. I mean, I'm thinking of that word and how it gets used, especially in this Facebook age in which we live. I think I have a thousand friends, supposedly. (laughs) Um, And I don't really know them that well. Some of them, I don't even know who they are. But we live in this society that has allowed uh, the word friend to get thrown around a little too loosely. But I think that you all know that your real friends are those that you can be honest with, those that you open up to, those with whom you express a compassionate candor. When you see them off kilter, you call it out. When they see you the same, they call it out. You know the difference. God and Habakkuk enjoy this kind of relationship that when Habakkuk perceives things to be off, he feels comfortable expressing that to God. Friends, did you know that one out of every three psalms in the Psalter take the form of lament? It is okay, right, good, and proper for you to express confusion to God over things that seem to be going wrong. The first step is actually to express that to the Lord. This is something that we need to, to grasp. Most of the godly men in the Old Testament will constantly ask God why. They're comfortable to express their complaint to him knowing that he's compassionate and that he's good and that he's wise and that he's just, but they just don't see it yet. And so we are invited to do the same in this particular setting. Uh, Friends, it is just a reality of the world in which we live. Let me ask you something. When was the last time that you actually cried out to God, what in the world is going on? Look, I love the high view of God that is shared here. But I want you to understand something, friends. God is not only transcendent over and above us. He is imminent. He is with us. He is near. He wants to hear from you. It is not disrespectful to vocalize concern and complaint to your Lord. Back to the story. There's been an argument from Habakkuk to God. God answered and said, I'm going to send the Babylonians. Then we saw that Habakkuk objects and says, why would you use them? They're so evil. And God now answers this second and final complaint. And notice, um, notice exactly how he does it. Uh, It's in chapter 2, verse 2. It says, and the Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. He's saying write this in big bold letters so that even if someone's running, they could see it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Now this is immensely interesting because like God is telling him, look, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, but here's the deal. You are going to have to get ready to wait. 
I'm going to do exactly what you think I should do. But the main thing that you need to know is not what I'm going to do, but when I'm going to do it. And it's going to be later than you think. Wait for it. And then in verses 4 all the way to the end of the chapter, God will unpack all of the things that he will eventually do to Babylon, who is so sinful. Uh, it's it's uh, these woes. These are these chants at, at funeral services like, this shouldn't be. This, uh, God's judgment has happened. And what he's doing is he has proleptically, like ahead of time, saying, woe to Babylon for these various things that they have done. In verses 6 to 8, as you can see there, their plundering and all of that uh, will be met with the promise that it will be returned to them. In verses 9 through 11, uh, Babylon is produced predicted to be judged for profiteering and they will be dishonored in verses 12 to 14 Babylon has done violence and evil to find cities for themselves to make a name for themselves but notice verse 14 in response as opposed to them building their own dynasty and house it says in verse 14 of chapter 2 for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea notice I will exercise judgment but I will also still do something good for the people of God the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord look at verse 15 he goes back to these woes uh, woe to him who makes his neighbor drink talking about how uh, they were just so concerned with immorality and drunkenness and he says they will be judged for that and then he says again uh, woe to you for your idolatry in verses 18 and 19 and he says it's empty it's worthless but in the end look at verse 20 the Lord is in his holy temple let all the earth keep silence before him He's saying, Habakkuk, I will fix it. I will fix it. I will punish them. I will do that which needs to be done. Wait for it. But I skipped a very important verse. One of the most important in all of the Bible. Before he ever gets to the descriptions of the prophecy, notice his counsel to Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul, talking about Babylon, is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. He's reminding Habakkuk of something here. He's saying, yes, I know that it seems bad, and yes, I will eventually work, but you will have to wait for it in faith. Those who are righteous... They don't just clamor around and make things happen and and help out the judgment of God. They actively depend on him. Paul will use this same passage in Galatians and Romans to summarize what connects us to the good gospel promises of God provided in Jesus Christ. It it is a life of faith, a life of dependence. Uh, Like when you can't see how it's working out and you just trust Like, that is the appropriate response in these times. And friends, this brings us again to another aspect of significance. We noted that this first step from despair to delight is actually honest investigation. It's okay to express your thoughts and feelings to the Lord. But there's a second step that's being taken here, and it is simply that of faithful hesitation. Faithful hesitation, a hesitation, a pausing, a ceasing that is full of faith. 
one that just will wait and trust the Lord for the timing. You may not know the what, you may not know the why, you may not know the how, but you do know the who. And therefore, you can wait. He says, Habakkuk, you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to trust me. Things will get there eventually. But in the meantime, you are going to have to count on my promises. This is exactly how it should go. And friends, I don't know about you, but one of the most difficult and yet also fruitful exercises in my own Christian walk are those times when I am forced to sit still. Came across this uh, poem, author unknown, in some cases attributed to Hudson Taylor. If you're not familiar, Hudson Taylor was um, that um, star of a missionary who uh, founded the China Inland Mission. Uh, the prevalence of Christians in the country of China today is directly attributed to his influence there. What few people know is that he actually had about six years of fruitful ministry there, and because of health reasons, he was forced to come home, and he didn't have any money. So he lived in a poverty-stricken area uh, outside of London, and this guy who thought he was going to be able to impact China with the gospel is now basically invalid and forced just to sit there. But it was through that particular suffering that donors and other missionaries began to get mobilized for the sake of the gospel. And his force, I mean, him being forced to return home to sit there and wait actually led to one of the greatest revivals in that part of the world ever known. And here's the poem that reflects his perceptions of that particular time. It's called standing still at sovereign will. In every life, there's a pause that is better than onward rush, better than hewing or mightiest doing. Tis the standing still at sovereign will. There's a hush that is better than ardent speech, better than sighing or wilderness crying. Tis the being still at sovereign will. The pause and the hush sing a double song in unison low and for all time long. O oh, human soul, God's working plan goes on nor needs the aid of man. Stand still and see, be still and know. Do you ever find yourself standing still at sovereign will? I think it's an American thing, this tendency for us to do something. And sometimes, oftentimes, God says, no, don't do anything. Wait for it. Wait. Stop. Be still. No. For all of us who have that aggressive impulse to go conquer the next mountain or to check off the next thing on the to-do list, listen carefully. You may find yourself short-circuiting the process from despair to delight 
if you don't actively wait in prayer for God to work. We read a few moments ago from 1 Peter chapter 3, and what's interesting about that passage is that Peter is warning of persecution that will inevitably accompany those who follow uh, Jesus. And he particularly uh, notes after he, he summarizes all this and says, you know, this is because you're suffering with Christ, his, his practicality is, is verse 13 of chapter 1, therefore, preparing your minds for action, notice that, you're preparing for action, and being sober-minded, what you do is set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said, hey, you need to be ready to do something, but you're not doing anything yet. <laughs> there will be times where you're, you're ready, uh, you're, 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 you're willing, but ultimately, the action verb here is to hope. Set your hope fully on the grace of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And friends, it, it kind of forces me to ask us a, just a very real question for a sec. As we consider this, like, does your Christianity make sense apart from the grace of the appearing of Jesus Christ? Because if it does, it might not be Christianity at all. The popular prevalent worldly gospel message is that you trust in Jesus and it'll make your life better in the here and now. And yes, you'll be able to go to heaven too. But the burden of hope of true Christian faith is not in the here and now, but in the there and then. He says, set your hope fully, not on what happens tomorrow or not what happens at the next doctor's appointment or not what happens at tax return time. Set your hope on that which is eternal in the end. And therefore, friends, that causes a whole lot of waiting. <laughs> There's a lot of sitting still at sovereign will because he has not yet come to fix and remedy all that which is wrong. And so there needs to be honest investigation where we can cry out to God in our distress and there needs to be faithful hesitation where we're just stilling ourselves before God and saying, Lord, I, I don't know about the what or the why and I'm just gonna have to trust you for the when in light of who you are. But we get back to the story and we find ourselves in chapter three. This, this argument has given way to adoration. So we're in the second act here. Uh, the first act was, uh, you know, the asking, the arguing. The, the second act is, is adoration. The first was interrogating God. This one is a celebrating of God. And radically something changes here. All of a sudden in chapter 3, instead of a lament, we get a psalm. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. Uh, friends, good luck knowing what that means. <laughs> All we know about Shigianoth is that it's some type of a musical setting, whether it be played on an instrument of 10 strings or whether it be a certain rhythm. But the point that I want you to understand is that what we have here isn't a theological treatise. What we have here is a song. It is intellectual, of course, but it is primarily emotive. And so it's going to start off with a brief prayer, and then it's going to go through 10 verses of praise, and it will praise God for something that we typically do not praise God for. 
Notice it, verse two. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He's saying, God, work like you used to. Do what you used to do. You've delivered your people so many times. I pray that you would do it again. Pour out your wrath if you need to. I know that that's the case. But in wrath, remember mercy. Protect us. And now in light of the reflections on what God will do with the Babylonians and what he will do with his people, notice how he's going to praise God for his righteous vengeance upon a rebellious earth. This is crazy. We love praising lowly Jesus, meek and mild, for being so kind and cute and compassionate in this Bethlehem-type scenes, but very rarely do we praise God for his righteous retribution upon the entire earth. And yet, Amos, excuse me, Habakkuk will sing this song with joy. Listen to it. God came from Timon and from the Holy, Mount, the Holy One from Mount Paran. It just means he's coming from the wilderness like he did in the other Old Testament passages. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. What that means is all this, this lightning that shot forth when he revealed himself at Sinai, that was just the covering for his power. That was the veil. That was the cloak. You haven't seen his power yet. Uh, look at verse 5. Uh, he's accompanied by pestilence. It says, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. God exercises sovereignty over natural disasters. They are his servants. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the seas when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? It's kind of a confusing line there, but in verse 8, he's particularly praising God for that time that he manipulated the waters of the Dead Sea to overcome the threat of Egypt. Verse 9, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. As the light of your arrows, they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Notice this. It's just talking about him in this case, dominating all who have ever opposed him, bringing salvation to the people of God and even to the, his anointed, his chosen Davidic representative. It says, you crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. So graphic. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to de devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Now, friends, this is so strange to us because we're like, why? Why would you praise God for, for his power and his exercise of judgment? Well, you praise him for that when you're looking for him to act on your behalf. We want a God who will eliminate our enemies. We want one who can purge this world of all of its threats. 
And in a similar way here, Habakkuk is actually crying out, thank you, God, for being the kind of God who can eliminate enemies, who can rid us of all that which would threaten us. And it's in this understanding of who God is, upon reflecting on those previous discussions with God, that his hope finally tilts in the direction of delight versus despair. Notice verse 16 that we read in our opening. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. What's he saying here? He's saying, God, when I first heard what you were going to do in punishing us and then in waiting to punish Babylon, it made me sick. It wrecked me. He didn't like the initial plan, but notice what he says. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Because he knows the who, he's not concerned about the when. God has such a track record of obliterating Israel's enemies, he is okay now with having to wait. Notice what he says in verse 17 to the end, and this is beautiful. Phil uh, quoted it earlier. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He, he makes me tread on high places. Uh, church family, this week I actually had the opportunity to see, just as one who doesn't get to see this very often, what uh, poverty looks like. You can see it through a video camera, but uh, find yourself three hours removed from any of the nearest cities without um, you know, any major electricity or plumbing. Uh, and you'll know that people in many parts of the world are forced to live on the land. You read uh, verses uh, 17, uh, verse 17 rather sleepily like, oh, well, man, my garden didn't produce this year. That's kind of bad. You know, I wish that uh, my, you know, token banana tree or avocado tree would have had a better yield. I mean, it's just for you, it's just an optional thing to have fruit on the vine, uh, to have produce in the garden. Uh, but for many, it's actually a matter of life or death. If this were to happen, if you were living in this particular day and the fig tree was not blossoming and there was no fruit on the vine and the olive was not producing and the fields were not yielding any food and the flocks were cut off from the fold, you had no access to livestock and there was no herd in the stalls, you are dead in the water. And in that moment he can say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Friends, I recognize that, especially this time of year where we live and in the time in which we live, uh, living from hand to mouth and poverty in this place is not really the problem. But as I've reflected on this verse through this week, tears have come to my eyes as I think about those who are suffering 
the deprivation that comes inevitably from living in a sin-cursed world. There are times where you thought that especially at this time of year, things would have been full and prosperous and happy, and yet they're emptier than they have ever been. There's no fruit on the vine. There's no flock out in the field. Think of those who suffer from ongoing pain, from those whose families have been ripped apart in recent years, for those who have suffered premature loss of loved ones, for those who have major financial needs, for those who are in distress at the, that the, the world seen around us. That, friends, there is real suffering going on, and can you actually say, even though things are horrific, I rejoice. The word rejoice there isn't just, I'm mildly contented. It's actually the word for celebration. It's one of those things where, where people actively celebrate, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. And notice how he describes it. He makes my feet like the deer's. I've never seen a deer trip or fall unless it was shot. <laughs> He's saying, like, look, I, I could, like, dance. He, he makes me to tread on high places. How do you get there? I think it starts with an honest investigation where someone is truly transparent in their times of emotional despair to cry out to God. And then they need to proceed from that to faithful hesitation where they're just willing to wait and know that the best promises that God has given us have not yet been fulfilled. We still await the return of our Messiah which gives way ultimately to informed adoration. Friends, this isn't just working yourself up in an emotional frenzy at an emotionally charged church service. Uh, this is someone who thinks deeply and contemplatively about God and not just his love and compassion, but also his coming wrath, knowing that all that which is wrong will be righted. This is how the perspective changes from the back seat. We know who's driving. We know where he's going. We may not know the way that he takes. We may not know how long it'll be till he gets there. But we know who's in charge and where he ultimately will lead. Friends, I ask you as we bring this message to a close, knowing that we get there eventually, which step do you most need to take to have this type of enjoyment in the Lord? For some of you, you may have bypassed the first one of that honest, raw, crying out to the Lord, weeping, in light of the suffering that you experience. You hold it in. 
and you tried to act like everything's okay and you were only circumventing a grace that God has given you. Uh, your Lord Jesus Christ has suffered as you are and he is a sympathetic high priest and he wants to hear from you. It is okay to complain to God. It is not okay to complain about God. It is okay to complain to God because he is the one who can fix it. For some of you, it may be uh, the faithful hesitation. Uh, You're so action-oriented. You're ready to fix the next thing. You want to know how uh, the the grief will subside. You want to know how the relationship is going to be repaired. You want to know how the finances are going to come in. You want to know how the health diagnosis is going to change. And yet the truth of the matter is it may just be, Lord, I will wait. Do what you will. And then for some, you may not be in that cycle of despair right now. If that is the case, I would encourage you to continue to exercise informed adoration. Friends, I don't know that you recognize that what we do here on a weekly basis together as a church is exactly the thing that sustained uh, the faith of Habakkuk. He thought deeply and appropriately about God, which led him to sober reflection and celebration. That's what we do here. That's why this place doesn't look like a concert hall. That's why it's well lit. We don't turn the lights down. We're not trying to manipulate your emotions. We want you thinking. We want you thinking deeply about God, on every aspect of God, because we know that's what leads to praise. Anybody can get a buzz from the right beat. But to actually think deeply about God and to have that inform our emotions, that is true worship. And that is what we've committed to do week in, week week out as a church. But friends, I want to give just one more word of encouragement uh, to those who may not fit into any of these categories. Maybe you're here today and you don't live by faith. You live by feelings. You live by facts. You're not into that faith thing. Can I just warn you of something? If you continue to live by your feelings and your so-called facts, you will find yourself huddled up in a corner. There is no hope for you apart from a God who is in control of all who rights all wrongs through the the sacrifice of his son, our Lord Jesus. Friends, this world is messed up. There are some things that are off, but God will remedy it. He will judge sin. And for those of us who are in Christ, our sin has already been judged. He's already paid for it, but if you are not in Christ this morning, he will right the wrongs, not only wrongs done against you, but wrongs done by you. And your only hope for the rescue that that he provides is to rely upon the finished work of his son. If you're feeling the despair, you want the delight, run to Jesus in faith. He has died to satisfy God's wrath. He has arisen again to give you power over the problems that you face, not only in this life, but the greatest problem you'll ever face, death and eternity.